0: Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much um, for your word, the truth of your word. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to read it and study it and teach it. Father, uh, may we never take for granted um, the gift you have given us in your revelation to us uh, through your son and through your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, in Chapter 2, chapters, chapters 2 and 3 are very similar, and you may have already noticed that. There's a lot of similarities. We'll talk about that in a minute. So just to kind of really quickly review Chapter 2, it is um, called by some, some people uh, see, or Act 2 of the Book of Ruth, four Acts, four chapters, four Acts, with three scenes. And in Scene 1, Ruth takes the initiative to care for herself and for Naomi and asks politely, may I go out and glean so that we don't starve to death, Uh, or words to that effect, and uh, and she does so. Um, And it tells us in that scene that as her chance chanced, she wound up in the field of Boaz, uh, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, although she didn't know that at the time, uh, of Naomi, and then presumably by marriage also of Ruth. And uh, then a- the action moves to scene two, which is uh, an interaction, a couple of interactions between Ruth and Boaz. And the focus then on scene two of chapter two is this- these two interactions between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz comes to the field and figures out who Ruth is and convinces Ruth not to leave his field. In fact, not just not to leave his field that day but not to leave his field for the entire time of the harvest. And it's possible that there was some sort of confrontation that happened just before Boaz arrived between Ruth and one of Boaz's workers that caused her to feel uncomfortable and decide to leave, and, and Boaz at that point stops her. And he grants, Boaz grants Ruth extraordinary gleaning privileges in telling her, don't leave. I've told the men not to touch you, and please you know, glean as much as you want out of... My fields. And um, then the second part of that scene is at lunchtime, where he again extraordinarily invites her to eat with him and, and the workers and gives her more food than she could even eat. And then even gives more extraordinary gleaning privileges by telling his men, you know, drop a sheaf here and there, you know, make sure she gets plenty of food, which in fact she did because in scene three she returns home to Naomi with this tremendous amount. Of barley that she has gleaned and then threshed and taken home Um, and and all of a sudden Naomi has an attitude change all of a sudden uh, she's happy because I guess you know I get pretty chippy when I'm hungry too does that happen to you and so yeah so if you're really hungry for a long period of time it could it could happen but all of a sudden she uh, is interested in in Ruth and and happy and particularly when she finds out in whose field Ruth was gleaning, uh, and that it was Boaz. And he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And then at the very end, the barley season, the barley harvest season ends, and Ruth is still living with Naomi. Nothing has changed. There is no first date. There is no marriage proposal. Nothing. You know, you have this promising, hey, look, you know, matchmaker situation. And nothing has happened. So then we move on to chapter 3, which theologians sometimes call Act 3 of this story. It also has three scenes. The the first scene is verses 1 through 5, and it's a short scene between Ruth and Naomi in Naomi's home where Naomi has a plan to get Boaz and Ruth together. Uh, And she's describing that plan. And then scene 2, which is a longer scene, Occurs between Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor, where Ruth enacts the plan, and and Boaz responds to it, uh, and uh, so there's that encounter between the two of them. Now, uh, and then and then the third scene is uh, the last uh, three verses, 16 through 18, where. Ruth comes back to Naomi and Naomi evaluates this encounter and they kind of talk about what happened and and Naomi evaluates it. Now, all of this may seem kind of odd. I mean, a a threshing floor really doesn't seem the most romantic place for a proposal to take place. I also don't think that an NFL football game is, but there are some men who apparently think that jumbotron is the best way to convey, will you marry me? Um, But you know, truly, how was a young Moabitess supposed to find a husband? Especially a widow, young Moabite widow, supposed to find a husband in ancient Bethlehem. And, and I love what Dr. DeGood has to say. He says nowadays she might run an advertisement in the Bethlehem Times <laughs> that is something like this. No, don't start. Please don't start. Please go on. Thank you. Widowed Moabitess seeks hardworking man of character for long walks in the barley fields and quiet evenings by the fire. Must like children. Really, I mean, it's it's just it was just as hard in whatever B.C. to find a good man as it is now. You know, I remember being in college thinking, i got to find one before I get out of here, because once I'm out of here, my chances are shot. There's, you know, there's 800 of them here. Who knows how many there are out there? I didn't, though, and I still turned out fine. Um, there are a lot of similarities between chapters 2 and 3, and both... Chapters have these three scenes, and the structure is very much the same. The first scene is a scene between Ruth and Naomi in Naomi's home, where they're discussing their situation, and it's short. In both chapters, the second scene is longer, and it's an interaction between Ruth and Boaz. And in the third scene in both chapters, another short scene between Ruth and Naomi after Ruth comes back. Um, from where she has been. Both chapters focus primarily, although Naomi is in both chapters, the focus of both chapters is uh, mostly on Ruth and Boaz and their interaction. Uh, In both chapters, Ruth leaves to go enact some sort of, um, to accomplish something. She leaves to accomplish something. In chapter two, to get food. In chapter three, to ask Boaz to marry her. Uh, And in uh, both chapters, there is this encounter with some tension uh, surrounding the encounter encounter between Ruth and Boaz. So they they have a lot of both structural and thematic similarities as we go through this. So in scene one of chapter three, the first five verses, uh, Naomi enacts her plan, or she she proposes her plan to Ruth. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, meaning Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find you a home, find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servants girls you have been, been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So this, this scene begins with these two questions from the mouth of Naomi that are, that are actually sort of double negatives. They're, they're a negative question that turns out to be a positive. And I, I, this is the way my brain works. The first thing I thought of was Mary Poppins. <laughs> you are George Banks, are you not? You did advertise for a nanny, did you not? And the answer to both of those questions, both in Mary Poppins and in Ruth, is yes. Shouldn't I do this? Yes, I should. I know, I have, a, I have a strange mind. I love Mary Poppins. Anybody else love Mary Poppins? Oh, thank you. I love Mary Poppins. Let's go watch Mary Poppins. And she says, shouldn't I find a home for you? That word is Manoa, and what is pictured with that word is a place of tranquility and repose. I imagine just like each one of our homes is, you know, especially Carrie with all the kids running around. It is a place of tranquility. Yeah, right, neither is mine. And, and another f- feature that I love in this is, she says, shouldn't I try to find a home for you where you will be provided for? Um, is this, this idea of, with, with Manoa, of rest that is so uh, prevalent, not, not just in Ruth, but throughout the whole Old Testament, that part of God's blessing to us, part of God's has said to us, is rest. And then she says she says that you will be for, well provided for. Ladies, I believe that God has, has written into our DNA as women that we desire security. That's nothing new. And Naomi recognized it in Ruth, and recognized it in herself and said, you know what? You have been good to me. Should I not help you find security and rest with a good man? And, and so her point here is what, what we've talked about in levirate marriage. She's trying to arrange a levirate marriage between their, one of their kinsman redeemers, Boaz, and Ruth. And part of the idea behind levirate marriage was to provide for a widow, but it was also so that the the widow and the and the man could raise up children in the name, in this case Ruth's husband, in the name of the husband who died. So they would actually be seen as not Boaz's descendants so much as Ruth's um, Ruth's uh, husband that, that is dead. So Naomi, the point she's doing here, what, what uh, Naomi is proposing is leveret marriage. She wants uh, Ruth to marry Boaz for a couple of reasons. First, it will be a means of providing actually for them both, both uh, physically and financially and emotionally. It will provide security for them both. But for Ruth... It will be a way of providing security for her after Naomi is gone. And, and, you know, after Naomi is gone, if she is not married, she's a foreigner alone in Israel. And so it's a means of providing for her after Naomi's death. But secondly, this marriage uh, proposal would also be a means of raising up children in the line of Elimelech. Hey, the chick wants grandkids. Can you blame her for that? Grandma's in here, can you, can you understand that? Of course she wants grandchildren. Look at this beaming woman over here that's expecting her second grandchild, her second granddaughter. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's what she wants, and that's part of what she's thinking. More importantly, look who is practicing chesed. The woman who has spent most of the first two chapters concerned with three people, me, myself, and I. The woman formerly known as bitter, has finally figured out that living with her mother-in-law may not be the best situation for Ruth. <laughs> yeah, duh, that, that's not the best situation. So she's showing her Has said She's saying, you know, I need to find you a better situation than the one we're in. So here's her plan. The first thing she says to do is wash up and look good. Uh, that's a good plan. But actually, she's not telling her to get all dolled up. It reads that way in the English, but she's not saying go find your prom dress and put it on, Um, because that word that that the NIV translates "best clothes" actually is just referring to this to a traditional tunic-like garment garment that all men and all women, although they were different between men and women, wore uh, kind of an outer covering. So she's not saying you know put on your best dress. However. Since Ruth has been in mourning for her husband, Naomi is likely saying, take off your mourning clothes and put on your regular clothes. Um, and, and thus signaling her readiness to end her time of mourning and engage in, real, in regular life, including marriage. So she's sending a signal that I'm ready uh, to remarry because I've taken off my, wedding, or my mourning clothes. The second thing she's supposed to do is go to the threshing floor, but hide until Boaz has eaten and drunk and uh, falls asleep guarding the grain. Wait until, uh, we'll learn later, he's feeling good, his heart is happy. Ladies, this is really good advice that's tucked in here. When are you supposed to talk to your husbands? Not during the game. Just don't, I know you may feel like it's absolutely necessary, just trust me, don't do it. Don't do it when he's tired. Don't do it when he's hungry. Don't do it when he's sweaty. Just wait until, and after a good meal, especially when you've cooked, that's a good time to bring something up that you need to talk to your husband about. And so that's what she's saying. Just wait, just wait. You know, we're going to get him in the best possible position to want to say yes to you. And then she says uncover his feet. Actually, the Hebrew says uncover his legs. And we'll talk about this in a minute. Um, and why, why would they say feet instead of legs when the Hebrew says legs? And, and then in the English translation, it says lie down on his feet. But actually, the Hebrew reads more naturally to say lie down next to him or even lie down close to him. And I think the English translators were like, what is going on here? Let's make it feet and lie down on his feet. So we don't know. There's, there's sexual tension going on here. And it's intentional. We'll talk about that. Uh, And then she says, wait for him to tell you what to do. He'll know what to do and and wait for him to tell you. There are some points in favor of this plan, as odd as it seems. First of all, Boaz is one of their kinsmen redeemers. And so as a kinsman redeemer, he is more likely to be favorable to the plan than just some random guy would be. Secondly, he knows Ruth and, and he likes her and he thinks she's a woman of character. And so that is the type of woman that a man of character would be looking for. Um, and thirdly, he, um, the opportunity is right for this to happen. Uh, they know, they know um, exactly where he's going to be and what he's going to be doing, and it's going to be a place where he, she can approach him. There will be a whole lot of places where she wouldn't be able to approach him, but this is one where she could approach him. Now, I know it seems odd, but did you tell me where exactly is a young Moabite widow supposed to go to ask a guy to marry her? I mean, it was as odd then as it would be now um, to, to do that. So th- I don't think there was a playbook for this is how you propose to a man, you know, in ancient Israel. Now, there are a lot of points not in favor of this plan, uh, and there are all kinds of risks here. Think about it. She was at risk in broad daylight, gleaning in a field full of people. People. If she was at risk then, then surely alone at night on a threshing floor with a man carries with it a number of risks. In fact, Boaz could have mocked her. Boaz, Boaz's complete opinion of Ruth could have changed in that moment. What are you doing? Uncovering my legs, lying down next to me. Woman, you're not my wife. Everything could have turned sour at that point. Um, in, in fact, he could have branded her as a gold-digging Moabitess. You just want my money. Worse, he could have, under some uh, ancient Israel uh, Hebrew law, have branded her uh, as, a, as an adulterer, or even though her husband was dead, or as a lascivious woman. Or he could have just publicly shamed her. He could remember when when Joseph and Mary, and and he did not want to publicly shame her, so he decided to put her away quietly. If he would have made made known what he thought Mary had done, she would have been publicly shamed. All Boaz had to do is, uh, you want to know what that Ruth, that foreign woman did? She came at night when I was alone, uncovered my legs and laid down next to me. She would have been publicly shamed. He He could have taken advantage of her sexually. He did none of that. But there were risks inherently uh, in this plan, and this plan is rife with potential problems, but Ruth's response is this, I'll do whatever you say. Surely she knew and understood the risks that were inherent in this plan, and she had already risked herself physically uh, and emotionally for Naomi. I think that this is a picture of how radical that commitment that Ruth made to Naomi was. When she said those words on the road to Bethlehem, she meant them. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Nothing but death will separate us. She meant it when she said it. So then in scene two, Ruth executes this plan. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, legs, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman, redeemer. So it says that after he had uh, had eaten and he had drunk, then he was in good spirits. Actually, the the literal, uh, literally in the Hebrew it says his heart was good. It's not, we're not back in Esther and King Xerxes. He wasn't drunk. It was just the, the well-sated feeling of a good meal and good drink and, you know, you're feeling good except for when it's Thanksgiving and you want to just, you know, lie down and die. Um, but, you know, so it's not, he hasn't He's not drunk, he hasn't overeaten, it's just, you know, that was good. And, and he's feeling good and he goes to lie down and she uncovers his legs. And then Boaz is startled awake, possibly because his legs were uncovered and it was cold and there was a breeze going through and woo, And so he was startled awake and obviously he was even more startled to find a woman lying next to him on the threshing floor. She was not here when I went to bed, I know that. So she sa- he says, who are you? I really wish that we could know his inflection here. You can't in the writing. Was it, who are you? Or was it, who are you? I mean, <laughs> we don't know, but, but obviously he's startled uh, awake. And Ruth then answers very carefully. Her words are very carefully chosen. But I, but I have to say that what happens here is not what Naomi told her to do, is it? Naomi said, "Just let him, he'll, he will tell you what to do. And in this, she tells him what to do. I think she wanted to make her intention. She knew, he's going to wake up, I'm going to be lying there, I want to make sure he knows why I'm there. I don't want him to get any false understanding of why I'm there. And so, um, and so she says, I am Ruth, your servant. She identifies herself as a servant. She did that in chapter 1. But in chapter 1, when she said, I am, you know, how, how can you show such, such kindness to me? I'm nothing but a servant. Uh, that was Sipha. And that was the lowest kind of servant. When she says, I, I am Ruth, your servant, in chapter 3, she says, I am your ama," And the word ama was used for female s- servants, it wasn't as low as a sifa, and it stressed uh, both the feminine qualities of that servant, ser- servant and their need for protection. In fact, it would be used by some servants, some female servants, as a self-designation saying, I am in need of your protection. I am a woman in need of your protection. So she is identifying herself as a servant, but she's identifying herself as a servant that, A, is marriageable, and B, is in need as one of the people under his kinsman redeemership uh, in need of her protection. So, both with her dress, she's no longer wearing mourning clothes, and with her Ruth or with her words, Ruth signals that she is ready to marry again. And it's possible that Boaz didn't push the issue up to this point because she wasn't signaling that uh, he hadn't, you know, tried to, to approach her because she hadn't signaled that yet. And then she spread, says, spread the corner of your garment over me. This is very key because you are my kinsman redeemer. That word corner is the word canape. Do you remember that word from chapter 2? Where, where Boaz says, may the Lord richly reward you. No, no, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have taken refuge. That word canape can mean wings, as in uh, the wings of a bird, but it can also mean the corner of a garment. And so she's saying, spread your wings of protection, spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. She's making very clear what it is she's saying here. So at very least, this is a plea for protection. She's saying, I want to come under your protection as my Goel, as my kinsman redeemer. In fact, in essence, she's asking him to answer his own prayer, where he says, may the Lord richly repay you. May may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for protection. And essentially she's saying, would you be the one who answers that prayer? Um, that you prayed that that I would be protected. Um, And in, in ancient Israel, the spreading of one's cape over a woman was like it was part of an engagement process where what the man is saying is, I promise to protect this woman. I promise to bring her under my wings and protect her. And so in doing so, Ruth is asking and Boaz is committing to marry her. It was almost like an engagement ring, What we would, you know, what, how we would use an engagement ring today. And he gets that. What she is saying is, will you marry me? She never says the words, but that's what she is saying in, in their culture and by their custom. And, and he gets it. Oddly enough, Jeff never said, will you marry me, either. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> he clearly, clearly implied it. Uh, Uh, Anyway, he interprets her words that way, and uh, and that is, in fact, what Ruth meant. So what Boaz is doing here is showing Ruth hesed, but it is an extension of God's hesed to Ruth and and then by extension to Naomi. Um, This is what, um, I'm not even sure who said this, so we're going to say a theologian said about this. By covering Ruth with his canape, that is, to marry her, Boaz implements Yahweh's canape, Yahweh's wings, that is his protection of Ruth. The Hesed of Boaz toward Ruth is the form in which Yahweh conveys his Hesed to her. And God most often does show his loving kindness to us through the Hesed of His people. Can I just say that it took more than a little spunk for Ruth to do this? For Ruth to, I mean, or as they might have said in Bethlehem, chutzpah. I mean, she really uh, took, it took a lot, I think, for her to do that. Nice little Moabite girl that she was. So then Boaz speaks, and I love this. The first words out of his mouth had to dispel any concerns Ruth had. Because the first thing that he does is bless her. The Lord bless you, my daughter. That's a little odd, but that is apparently a a cultural thing. Um, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing... As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So he blesses her. He begins by saying, the Lord bless you. And then he says, this kindness you have shown me, uh, meaning by coming to the threshing floor and essentially proposing to me, is greater than the one you showed before. What was that first hesed? Um, I believe that what he's referring to there, this is even greater than the hesed you have shown Naomi. This is even greater than your, your going out to glean, to provide. For Naomi, And then he says, um, you have not run after younger men. Now this does more than, than indicate to us that Boaz is a good deal older than Ruth, which, which he probably is. But it also may give us a hint into why he didn't pursue the relationship himself. He assumed she wouldn't, what kind of a young girl would be interested? His sense and sensibility. Yeah, it's that whole thing between the older man and the younger woman. She would never want me, an old guy like me. And so that may be why he didn't pursue the relationship in the first place. And then he says, You are a woman of noble character. I love this because what he says is, you are an eset hail. Remember, he was referred to as a gibber hail, a real substantial man of character. And he's saying, you are a real substantial woman of character. As Dr. Laura would say, they're a match. They are the same. Um, and, uh, and so they, he, is, he is telling her he will do everything that, that she has asked him to do. Boaz is a man of character through and through. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room with the uncovering of the legs and the lying beside. There is sexual tension in this passage. It's there. You may have never noticed it before, but right about now you're noticing it, aren't you? And it's not taught when we teach this to our, you know, kindergartners either, but it is there. Look, this is real life stuff, and I think all of y'all are married. You under, come on, I remember it. There's a reason why Jeff and I were only engaged three months. and this is real life stuff and so the point is not that the author in the Bible is giving us racy material to read it's not like we should have a a picture of Fabio on the cover of the book of Ruth the author is giving us evidence of the complete integrity of these two people they are alone at night in a remote place nobody would know and they're in love and they plan to marry nobody would know And yet they act with complete integrity toward one another. Now, honestly, really, ladies, if the threshing floor is a bad place for a marriage proposal, it's a really bad place to, you know, do a little dance, make a little love, and get down tonight. But, seriously, I think that this this passage should be trumpeted to our teenagers. They need to see two people who are attracted to each other and who yet Do not act upon it. I mean, when was the last time any of of us, including teenagers, has seen a movie where two characters are sexually attracted to one another and yet remain chaste? That is not the picture that we are getting on the nightly TV shows that come through our TV. Truly, the, the unusual thing about this passage is not that it's a biblical passage recording sexual uh, attention between two people that are attracted to each other. The truly unusual thing about this passage is that they both act with complete purity and integrity toward one another. So Boaz then, he, she lies there until morning and then Boaz acts on his intentions at least symbolically. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. It must have been heavy because he had to lift it. And then he went back to town. So what he's doing here is he's giving her a symbolic gift, of, a large gift of grain. Uh, and he is showing the genuineness of his promise. This is not, you know, hey, yeah, I'll call you. He's showing that he means it, and it's genuine. It's a symbol of his commitment to the relationship. And at the same time, it's, it, it signifies that he understands that his act of redemption is not complete yet. The number six in uh, Scripture often refers to incompleteness. Um, and so he's saying, look, I'll give you six measures. The, the point isn't how much barley was it. The point is that it was six measures intentionally to say, look, I'm promising to fulfill this, but I understand that I haven't done it yet because the number seven then would be the promise of completion. Um, and so then she goes home and, when, uh, and reports to, to Naomi, and Naomi responds. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law Naomi, uh, came to her mother-in-law Naomi, asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So there's new information here. We we find out something that Boaz said uh, that we didn't know before, and that is, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Interesting wording, isn't it? That word empty is the exact same word that Naomi used for herself uh, and and to describe herself just a few months earlier. And Boaz, by giving all this barley, is sending a message to Naomi by saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed and sending this grain. He's sending the message of, I'm serious about this. I didn't just tell her I'd do it. I really mean it. And he's also signaling to her the end of her emptiness, that she will never be empty again. And Naomi gets it. Naomi understands that that's the message being sent. However, the outcome is still in in doubt because there is that sticky little matter of the other kinsman redeemer out there, and we'll learn more about him in Chapter 4. But Naomi has no doubt that Boaz will take uh, the issue at hand and and act on it to do what he said he would do. And in fact, these are the last words that Ruth and Naomi speak in the the book of Ruth. Uh, From here on out, Boaz will be uh, at the center of the story, uh, and it will be his actions that take center stage. Well, just to end today, I want to talk, and and I I, I just have to tell you, that this is not where I thought the lecture was going when I was writing it. This was, I, I don't know how you're going to receive this, but just know that I thought God was saying something, and if he wasn't, just walk out and go, that ain't he. That's fine. But, you know, I think one of the main points of this chapter is the integrity. One of the main points of, of the whole book is the integrity of both Ruth and Boaz. Throughout this chapter, throughout this book, we see that Ruth is a real substantial woman of character, an eset and Boaz is a real substantial man of character, a gibber They act with complete integrity. The word integrity comes from the word integer, which means wholeness. Integers are whole numbers. It means wholeness. And when metallurgists talk about the integrity of a metal, what what that means is if if a metal has integrity, it means it's the same all the way through. It is pure everywhere. Through and through, it is pure. It is consistent. So a person of integrity then is one who is wholly, not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly consistent in character. She is the same all the way through. No matter where she is, no matter who she's with, No matter who's looking, no matter if nobody's looking, she acts the same. In my life, the greatest example of integrity I have ever known was my father, and you've heard me say that before. He was the same in the boardroom as he was in the family room. A lot of times there are people that everybody thinks are great people, and if you ask their kids, they go, Not my dad's kids, not my mom's kids. We knew, I tell people all the time when they say, your parents were great, I always say, you don't know the half of it. Because I was there in the family room and he was the same man there. He was the same through and through. His character was consistently godly. Ladies, that is what God calls his people to be. The same when nobody is looking as they are when everybody is looking I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here in applying this. But Ruth and Boaz acted with complete integrity in what was a sexually charged situation. And they were all alone and they were attracted to one another and they did not act on it because they were people of integrity. Didn't matter how they felt, it didn't matter um, that nobody was watching they still acted with complete integrity uh, in their sexual relationship. So my question to you, as I believe mostly married women, is, and to me, by the way, I'm not just asking you, my question to us is, am I acting with complete integrity in my sexual relationship with my husband? Maybe it depends on the environment, um, because there are ways I believe we can act without integrity in that sexual relationship. Maybe it's when you're alone, your behavior is different. Maybe it's when your girlfriend's your behavior is different. I don't know your marital struggles and frankly you don't know mine either. But perhaps you struggle with lust or with pornography or simply sexually explicit movies. Certainly they are abounding on TV and in the movies and in reading material. But if you're like most women, your struggles are less obvious. Uh, Maybe it's coveting a man that is not yours instead of cherishing the one that God has given you. Maybe it's betraying your husband by sharing with your girlfriend's intimacies that should not go beyond your own bedroom. Or maybe it's withholding sex from your husband as a means of controlling him or as a means of punishing him instead of freely giving yourself to him. Any way you slice it, we are called by Scripture to lead lives of complete integrity in every area, including the area of sexual purity and sexual integrity with our husbands. Now I know that that's a rather odd turn to take in our study, this, you know, I'm not teaching Song of Solomon anymore, and, but frankly, I think we all struggle with this at some time, and Uh, And I think that that's a major, I mean, I didn't really even realize it until a couple days ago, that that's probably, there there are other messages in this chapter, but that's probably the major message in this chapter, is not only the character of Ruth and and Boaz, but their character in this sexually charged situation. Uh, And so I decided to run with it. And uh, my prayer is that there's someone out there that needed to hear it. And if that's you, God told me to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you so much that it's real, that it's not some pie-in-the-sky thing that we can't apply to our lives, that these are, these are real people, and they, they lived real lives with struggles and issues and brokenness. And yet, Father, even in that, they turned to you and desired to live lives that honor you. May we do the same. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One more week, ladies. It's hard to believe. Oh, and let me say one more thing. Uh, Because I get asked this question a lot this time of year. What are you teaching next year? The answer to that question is I don't know. So, if you have suggestions, if there's something you've been thinking, oh, I just really wish that Amy would teach this, I'm open for suggestions because I have no idea what I'm teaching next year. Thanks, ladies.